You're listening to The Popcast. When I think about everything we've been through together, maybe it's not the destination that matters. Maybe it's the journey. I can't think of any place I'd rather be or any people I'd rather be with. There was a time you looked at the stars and dreamed of what might be. I like science. That's an interesting twist. Mm. For every Star Trek fan, each of those clips produce an emotional reaction. Some scenes create a warmth of nostalgia and a spark of joy, while others might invoke indifference, dislike, or downright loathing. Or perhaps there is something you like from each of them. The one thing that is clear is that old Trek versus new Trek is a thing. Not just pre-discovery and post-discovery either. Old Trek versus new Trek rears its head every time creators try to do something new. Sometimes it's a blip on the Trekkie radar, but at other times it's a 50 megaton nuclear bomb. The thing is, every Star Trek fan has their favorite series and movie, and in most instances, we're all different. Even here at the Popcast, we are split. Brian loves Voyager because it provided uncharted adventure in the Delta Quadrant, and I love the original series because nothing was impossible when you put Kirk and Spock together on an alien planet. You realize that the aim will, of course, be very crude. I don't care if you hit the broadside of a barn. Just hurry, please. Ironically, we both love Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. There's something deeply entertaining about the utopian future paying a visit to our strange, complicated, and barbaric present. But is the same true when you say that in reverse? What happens when you bring the complicated and barbaric present into the utopian future? Is it still entertaining? Some fans have lodged this complaint against the latest version of Trek. The reality is, the truth about why there is a battle between Old Trek and New Trek goes a lot deeper than what Klingons look like or how many brothers or sisters Spock had. Are you ready for a light bulb moment? Whether you feel like new Star Trek is ruining the franchise or you think Old Trek fans are stuck in the past, you aren't going to want to miss this video. And if you haven't already subscribed to our channel, please do so now and click the notification bell to never miss a show. Also, stay tuned until the end of the video so you can see a new Star Trek-inspired graphic design from the amazing artists at MixTees.com. When the seventh series of the Star Trek franchise was announced in November 2015, with Brian Fuller as showrunner, fans were excited and hopeful. Finally, after a decade, Star Trek was coming back to television. And since Fuller was a writer and executive producer on both Voyager and Deep Space Nine, the fandom felt like CBS was trying to create a continuity between Old Trek and New Trek. The addition of Star Trek veteran director Nicholas Meyer and Rod Roddenberry, the son of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, as executive producers to the new show, felt like everything was going in the right direction. Fuller said that working with people previously involved with Star Trek was really about making sure we maintain authenticity, music to the ears of any fan. But then came the first crack in the armor. Once fans realized the new show was being created specifically for the new CBS all-access streaming service, which would come with its own monthly fee, there were some grumblings. But at that time, most fans agreed that while they didn't want to pay more, they would for good new Star Trek. Then, 11 months later, 
Fuller was out. CBS put Alex Kurtzman in the driver's seat, and because the new showrunner worked with J.J. Abrams to create the new rebooted Kelvin Timeline Star Trek movies, rumors of Discovery being an extension of that universe were starting to grow. Fans soon learned that the new series would not only be another prequel to the original series, but it would be centered around a first officer instead of the captain. Enterprise had also been a prequel to the original series and was generally considered the least favorite series among fans. The grumblings grew louder. So when Star Trek Discovery's first look trailer dropped on May 17, 2017, it was going to need to impress fans who were already skeptical of the new show. If you were to gauge the temperature of the new show by the comments in the trailer's YouTube comment section, it was apparently a cold day in hell. Everything that had been potentially bothering long-term fans up to this point came flooding out. The technology was too advanced. Not another prequel. Oh look, more lens flares. Coming soon to a streaming service no one will buy. And of course, are those supposed to be Klingons? The comment section looked like the gaping hole in the side of the Titanic, but people were still screaming, Iceberg, dead ahead. Comments aside, there were still twice as many likes as dislikes on the video. And while that isn't a good ratio, it meant more people liked it than disliked it. There were still fans unwilling to judge the new series based on the trailer, and many people wanted to wait and see what would be released on September 19th before making any judgments. But for many fans, the new series was on a short rope. Then, just a month before the world premiere, Jason Isaacs was quoted in the New York Daily News as saying he didn't care if diehard Trek fans liked the new show, and that this version of Star Trek would throw away the legacies of William Shatner and Patrick Stewart. The headline read, New Star Trek Captain Doesn't Care If Trekkies Like Him. Talk about unnecessarily swatting in a beehive over your head. Isaacs may not have cared if Trekkies liked him, but there is no doubt CBS and their future bank accounts greatly cared. The article would get a hushed face emoji from William Shatner on Twitter, and Isaacs was quick to say his comments were taken out of context and denied saying anything about the legacy of Shatner. Regardless of Isaacs' intentions, serious Trek fans of all ages were agitated and ready to punch holes in everything they saw wrong with Discovery when it launched. And boy, did they. But let's get back to that in a moment. What Discovery was experiencing wasn't something new. Star Trek fans have been carrying pitchforks and torches to the gates of the newest series going all the way back to the next generation in 1987. It's going to be a disaster. No captain could ever replace Kirk. The next generation? What a lame name. The new captain is bald and old? It's hard to believe now, but 100% true. And when Star Trek Voyager was coming out in 1995, both men and women were highly critical of the fact that a woman was going to be the captain of a Federation starship. Even Deep Space Nine, essentially a spin-off of The Next Generation, received criticism for being too static. But because TNG and Voyager ran alongside the space station soap opera, fans were content to let it do its own thing. Today, Deep Space Nine is generally liked by fans, but purists who often complain that New Trek does not align with Gene Roddenberry's vision might be surprised to learn that showrunner Ira Stephen Bear didn't like a flawlessly Roddenberry life is so good utopia. He said it all sounded like gobbledygook and it was his idea to use Deep Space Nine to critique the Federation after being aggravated and butting heads with Roddenberry. And where do we begin with Enterprise? The theme song? 
That steamy scene in the shower with Tucker and T'Pol? Scott Bakula is the man, but even his presence couldn't keep Star Trek diehards from lambasting it with missed opportunities that all prequels seem to suffer from. Then there was the dreaded serialization and story arc later in the series. This method of storytelling has also been explored with Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek fans were not crazy about it. And as you will learn in a moment, this new strategy for storytelling would be a key element for a divided Star Trek fandom. The reality is that Star Trek creators face naysayers every time it recreates itself. And there was a time that Old Trek was the original series, and New Trek was the next generation. Old Trek was also everything before Enterprise, and New Trek was Enterprise. And of course today, Old Trek is everything before Discovery, unless you're among those fans still fuming about Enterprise. But the main difference between pre-2005 Star Trek and post-Discovery is that eventually Picard won us all over. Janeway proved she was more than woman enough for the job. Cisco showed us his humanity. And well, Archer was Scott freaking Bakula. You have no idea how much I'm restraining myself from knocking you on your ass. And for the most part, Star Trek fans eventually sat back and enjoyed the ride. But for a large part of the fandom, now going into season three of Discovery and in the first season of Picard, there is no kumbaya moment. A lack of trust in the showrunner, a sense that none of the actors or producers cared about longtime fans, and the perceived mishandling of the first season of Discovery have created a divide that many fans aren't willing to bridge. In the same way that our world is politically divided, where battle lines have been drawn and teams are being picked, so too have fans found themselves either on the side of a vocally progressive entertainment industry or an equally vocal conservative viewer base. Concerns by fans of having overly progressive characters and storylines shoved down their throats are being met equally by other fans and creators who insist that Star Trek has always been progressive, and if you don't like it, there's the door. Fans on the side of New Trek would say that it's the purest fans who've forgotten the Gene Roddenberry golden rule, and they aren't wrong about Star Trek being progressive. Star Trek has always been liberal. There is always a lesson wrapped in the entertainment that reminded us to be inclusive, protect those who need protecting, and point it out when things are being done unfairly. But there is a difference in how today's version of Star Trek communicates those values. During the original series, Roddenberry wanted to tell stories that had social lessons in them, but he couldn't be obvious because the censors would not let the show air. So he hid the message in the alien cultures that the Enterprise came into contact with. It wasn't humanity struggling with right and wrong. It was somewhere else, far away and inconsequential to life here on Earth. The half black and white alien and the half white and black alien may see themselves as totally different, but the crew of the Enterprise didn't see the big deal. The message was getting through, but they weren't putting a mirror up to the viewers' faces. And in this way, Roddenberry was able to address controversial topics like the Vietnam War, sexism, racism, politics, and even intercontinental missiles. The crew of the Enterprise was diverse, inclusive, and a shining example for alien races who were less socially advanced. For Star Trek fans, the message was, this is what we can be. And no matter how bad it is today, in the world or in your home, this can be the future. Roddenberry was selling hope, 
In the future, the acceptance of race, sex, gender, and religion could benefit all of humankind, as well as any ETs we came into contact with. And this was also the foundation the next generation was created with. Whether it was Riker falling for an androgynous alien species, or Picard overcoming cultural differences for international diplomacy by going on a long and epic journey with a Temerian captain, the examples are endless and continue throughout the rest of older Star Trek. This subtle messaging, combined with a likable and respected person leading a cohesive cast, is a critical ingredient to the secret sauce that makes Star Trek so enjoyable to many longtime fans. Fans were able to enjoy the escape of the entertainment while subconsciously absorbing a positive lesson for a forward-thinking humanity. Another key ingredient for many Star Trek fans is having a diversity of characters, one of which mirror yourself and allow you the warm and fuzzy feeling that a future utopia would include someone like you. And while Discovery was excited about embracing diversity and ensuring this inclusivity would extend to the LGBT community, the already skeptical straight white male fans of the show felt they either weren't represented, or if they were, the representation contained a message for them. Of the two men who represented them on the show, one was a converted Klingon, and the other was the bad guy of the show. Women, stop talking. Unintentional or not. And I think it was just the four of us. I thought to myself, I believe this is the first time four women have sat around and decided what the future of Star Trek was with nobody else in the room. The message received by many heterosexual white men was that there used to be a place for you in Star Trek's utopian future, but not anymore. This was likely inflamed as a result of the perceived world political landscape that some would argue had put a bad guy label on white straight males. The perceived lack of inclusivity for them would be more fuel to the growing divide in the fandom. Those changes, along with the initial changes to the canon of the show, and messing with that secret sauce of having a cohesive crew centered around one main character who embodied and upheld the ideals of Starfleet, was enough to make some fans walk away from the show in frustration, anger, and apathy. And while Season 2 of Discovery and the introduction of Captain Pike, as well as filling plot holes and fixing canon, went a long way to try and repair the problems of the series, old Trek fans had already turned their backs, and the divide is still a chasm, even as Discovery marches into a third season. And if that weren't enough, there may be a bigger reason fans of old Trek have problems connecting with the newer Trek series, and that is a fundamental change in how the shows are made. We referred to it earlier as serialization and story arcs. There was something familiar and appealing about self-contained stories that mostly stood on their own. The growth of the characters could be seen from episode to episode, but there was a beginning, middle, climax, and ending that was a satisfying little present each week. Over the course of a season, we were still able to see Data's drive to understand humanity, or the Doctor's endeavor to break free from the bonds of his holographic prison. Computer, activate the ECH. Acknowledged. But there was never a sense that if you missed an episode, you couldn't pick it up again next week without missing a beat. With serialized Star Trek, and this goes back to both Deep Space Nine and Enterprise, there was a pressure to never miss, or you take a chance of having it spoiled the next day at work. 
or by a family member. There is a mild anxiety to watching serialized TV shows that reminds me of your favorite dessert just being out of reach. You keep coming back each episode, hoping to enjoy it, but the dessert just gets further and further away. And with some shows, you might not get the rewarding conclusion until the end of the season, or in some cases, not even until the end of the entire series. The success of shows like Lost, Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, and The Sopranos, among others, proved to networks and creators that you could lock people into your show each week if the show was great, but also if just a few unanswered questions are left each episode. Human curiosity rivals that of the cat, and you know what happened to the cat. No, serialized TV will likely not kill us. High blood pressure? Sure. But the bottom line is, we just have to know how something turns out, and show creators know it. Check out our video on If You Binge Watch Season 4 of The Expanse to learn more about this phenomenon and how it's changing the way we experience entertainment today. Don't get us wrong, serialized TV isn't the devil, but for many Star Trek fans, it just doesn't feel right. It was difficult for people to embrace the final seasons of Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. Now, Discovery and Picard are being made the same way. There is something special about tuning into your favorite shows and wondering what's going to happen tonight. Instead, we know it's a continuation of what happened last week. And if you don't love what happened last week, tuning in may feel more like an obligation than something fun and exciting to do. And you can see the backlash in this with successful shows like The Orville, Long-time Star Trek fans have flocked to the Orville's self-contained episodes that pay an homage to the old Trek style of episode delivery. The Orville also has a tight-knit crew, surrounded by a leader who embodies the ideas of their utopia. Sound familiar? This same thing happened to Stargate fans, who became upset when Stargate Universe came along and ended self-contained episodes for their franchise. And that poor fan reception is one of the number of reasons we still don't have Stargate today. The question begs to be asked, if fans have fallen in love with a formula that works, why change it? A fair answer is that creativity demands change, and in order for something to remain fresh and cutting edge, things can't always remain the same. But the truth is a bit more cynical. Self-contained episodes are harder to conceptualize and write. Everything has to fit into a 48-minute movie, and there is less time to waste from beginning to end. But in a show with a 12-episode season story arc, you have one big story, and you can stretch that story idea out as long as you can keep leaving the audience with a reason to come back each week. The reward is that as a creator, you have more flexibility. But the risk is that if you lose the viewer, it's really hard to get them back. Studios and showrunners feel that you can lock more people into committing to your show with this method. And while it's still hard to make a TV show, it's a whole lot easier to make one long movie than 12 mini-movies each season. And how often do you hear that the writing is lazy or the writing is bad? You didn't hear that about 24, Battlestar Galactica, or Mad Men, but it's a common complaint about new Star Trek, good, bad, or otherwise. The problem is that Star Trek has yet to really be successful as a serialized show. That's not how old fans enjoy ingesting it, and that is another reason for the divide. There are lots and lots of new Star Trek fans who love serialization and think old fans are crazy. Why are they making such a big deal? Get over it. It's TV. Don't take it so seriously. But you don't get labeled a diehard if you don't take it seriously, right? Will the Star Trek divide ever come back together, or will the weight of both sides pulling bring the whole franchise down? 
Will the re-emerging of Paramount and CBS be the beginning of the healing for the fandom? Perhaps going back to self-contained episodes is the answer. Or do they stay the course and hope that the old adage, time heals all wounds, is true in science fiction as it is in life? Whether you are a fan of old Trek, new Trek, or both, why do you feel fans are always drawing lines between the two? How much of it do you think has to do with the changes in Star Trek? And do you think the current political climate has anything to do with a broken fandom? Let's talk about it in the comments below. And also check out this graphic design at Mixtees.com, as well as their other Star Trek-inspired designs. Get 20% off your purchase by using coupon code THEPOPCAST. The link is in the description below. Don't want this video to end? Visit us at the Popcast Live YouTube channel to learn all of the behind the scenes on this video and others. Until next time. We're going to stumble, make mistakes, I'm sure more than a few before we find our footing. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about.